Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey folks, today I have Carrie Baldwin back on the show. Carrie was on our second episode where we discussed our article, The Virulence of Moral Panic. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go check it out after you've listened to this. A lot of what Carrie said in that episode has proven to be true where the coronavirus scare is concerned. But today we're going to talk about a very cool project she's working on, and that is her Socratic seminar she holds online. Let's go. Right. Would you rather serve God than serve right. Caesar? You know me? Right. I'm just trying to live what he said. I'm just trying to live what he said. I ain't scared. I will take one to the head. Go ahead. So it's safe to say that I'm bad. So it's safe to say that I'm bad. So how is... And I, and I tell people all the time, and I think I told you before we started recording that if you don't know who Carrie Baldwin is, you really should check her out on Facebook because she gets really animated about how this coronavirus thing has affected her in New Mexico. And how are you holding up in New Mexico, the communist New Mexico? Uh, well, I mean, we're here. We're surviving. Um, we are one of two states that are still technically on lockdown. So California being the other one, our governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, who is jockeying for a cabinet position in the Biden-Harris administration, has recently renewed our our health order and lockdown um, just this past weekend. And she's she's gone back to, you know, reducing or banning mass gatherings over five people and uh, she's she's now even gone as far as to say um, uh, that we're limited to how many outings we can take. We can only have three outings. We can go to work. We can go to childcare if we if if we have that if that's a category in our life, and then we can do one self care outing a day. So grocery store, Target trip, whatever. Um, of course, there's that right now. There's no way that she can actually enforce that. But when we had the mask mandate, and we've had the longest standing mask mandate in the United States, we're the first ones to have a mask mandate. Uh, nobody really understood how she was going to enforce that either, but she did it through um, encouraging peer pressure and and bullying. And she leveraged the restaurant industry and sort of um, held them at gunpoint, so to speak, and threatened everybody else. If you don't obey, then the restaurants are going to get shut down. And restaurants here, I mean, a huge part of our economy are our restaurants. And so, you know, that created that created a lot of tension among the people. And so people started bullying each other. And it was just, it was insane. It was absolutely insane. Um, but you know, now New Mexicans have, have grown a little wiser. I think, um, they're not taking her orders as seriously as they did. At least they don't appear to be, um, typically New Mexico is very politically apathetic, which I think worked against us initially in the lockdown because everybody went along with it. But now I think the political apathy is working to our favor because, you know, people, people are starting to see this is not the big, scary monster that we were told that it is. And we have a life to live. We have things to do. We cannot, you know, sit here and be dictated to by a tiny tyrant up in, in Santa Fe. So, 
you know, it really sucks though, because she has shut down a lot of our economy. Um, she canceled our balloon fiesta. We have an, in, the international balloon fiesta every single year, which accounts for a third of our annual income, um, for all businesses and a third of the, the revenue for the state. So that's going to really hurt us in the long run. Usually this time of year, we are, uh, enjoying the smell of roasted green chilies. I have not, uh, I, I've not seen the roasters out. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I have not seen the roasters out. I have not smelled the, the roasting green chili, which I miss. So, you know, she, she claims to be, you know, New Mexican and claims to love our heritage. And she has completely shut all of that down. She's saying no Halloween, no Thanksgiving, no Christmas. You guys are not allowed, you know, you have to wear masks inside your home unless you're alone. (laughs) It's, it's, it's utter insanity. Now, what term is she in? Like, is she in her last term or is she going to be able to run for reelection? Well, um, yeah, she would be able to run for re-election, but we're only halfway through her first term. She's really banking on uh, Biden and Harris winning. And she, like I said, she's jockeying for a cabinet position, specifically um, the Health and Human Services Department, which kind of freaks me out a little bit because, you know, New Mexico often gets left in the dust when it comes to national media. Like we don't get a whole lot of attention over here and people should be paying attention to what she's doing because if she does actually get this cabinet position, if Biden wins and she gets this cabinet position, she's going to be doing all of the same crap she did here to the rest of the country. Well, the reason I asked if she was going to be running for reelection, like the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson is somebody that I've grown to despise. Like I just, his Facebook post every day, updating coronavirus things. And this many people have tested positive today, but he's in his last term. Like he's not eligible to run again for governor. And so I wonder why, so sometimes I wonder if he's just doubling down to try to finish whatever legacy he thinks he's going to have as governor of Arkansas. And I'm noticing like a lot of people that comment on his, on his, Facebook posts, like it was one way, it was one-sided for a long time. Everybody was thanking him for his service and thank you for, thank you for protecting Arkansans and this and that. I'm thinking, good, great. But it's starting to shift the other direction where people are like are getting sick of this. And you and I talked about that in, in the episode of, on your, about your article, uh, virulence of moral panic. And I remember telling you, I was like, at some point people are going to get sick of all of this garbage. And they're going to tell the state to get bent. And I'm starting to notice that a little bit with Arkansans, like even like my friends and family that still live there, they're, they're tired of it. Not, not everybody, not everybody. No, don't get me wrong. There's still some on there like are still going by this. You know, you got to wear a mask. It, it, one thing I've noticed this just this past week, like the coach of Alabama caught COVID <laughs> and they are adamant about wearing masks. And uh, Kamala Harris, some of her people in her camp caught COVID. And you know they've been wearing masks this whole time. Yeah. The masks are not doing what you think they're doing. All you're doing is restricting your oxygen to your brain. And I think it's making you not be able to think like you're supposed to. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, I mean, the whole thing is is clearly very frustrating. I think our governor in particular is 
sort of fueled, I mean, that, that, that phrase from Fred, from Friedrich Hayek about the fatal conceit that is totally describes our governor, because on the one hand, we've actually had a very low fatality rate here. Like I think our fatality rate here has been, um, well, I'm going to get that number wrong, so I'm not going to mention it. But anyways, it's been it's been significantly much lower than than our surrounding states, and uh, the governor has attributed that as a success to to her methods. Like she literally believes that she is the reason for having for us having a low fatality rate. And the other the other piece of information is that all those Californians who are you know leaving California, they're moving out in droves. They're coming here to New Mexico because it's cheap. And so she thinks because, because New Mexico is attracting these, these, you know, this influx of, of people from California, that people actually want her to be like this. They want her to be, you know, overly (laughs) maternal. I mean, this is, this is sort of the, um, the Oedipal mother, if you want to attribute a psychological term to her, she's, she's totally has the Oedipal mother complex, but you know, she is, she is very convinced of her own superiority. And she is convinced that she is the reason why our fatality rate is low and we have to double down now and, and get on it. And gosh, darn it, you new Mexicans, you're screwing things up for me. Like that's exactly, that's how she talks. It's really weird. That's Sorry, that's hilarious. It sounds like, and we're getting a little off track of what we were talking about, but I want to say this, like, so I I live right outside of Memphis and the city of Memphis is super liberal. And I'm not saying this is just a liberal thing, like, because the governor of Arkansas is is a Republican. So this is, Mm -hmm. it goes on both sides. Yeah. But like the city of Memphis Facebook page, for, for example, they posted something the other day and they were showing the amount of cases since this started. It was like 38,000 or something. I don't, I don't remember the exact number, but to the left, it showed the amount of recoveries and it was like 37,000 recoveries. And to the right, it showed how many people have died from it. It was like 500 and something. Mm-hmm. And I looked at this and I said, do y'all not see this look at the number on the left compared to the number of cases and compared to the number on the right look at how many people have survived this and you're shutting people's lives down for this it doesn't make any sense now i get it people are sick and people die from it i get it it happens every year with the flu season and guess what we're coming right back into flu season what's going to happen next you know it's over people have to recognize that this is over it, we're just going to catch the flu. But now, and there was another the thing that, that, that came out and said, flu cases are down this year. No kidding. <laughs> we're calling it something else now. Well, and this is, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned earlier that, that sometimes I get animated on my Facebook page um, about this. And, you know, I try and, I, I try and really temper my, my uh, posts about it because it does, it does genuinely upset me. And part of the reason why is that, you know, I used to work in the medical field. I used to work in medical laboratory science. And so I know a little bit about how the immune system functions and um, how immunity works in our bodies. And what really gets at me is that all of these, 
all of these preventative measures that we're using, the masks, the social distancing, reducing family gatherings, not going to church, all of these things are are genuinely important to us as social creatures, as social human beings. And because of that, because we are social creatures, that contributes to our health and our well-being. And so you know, all of these measures ultimately are not not only counter to a longstanding history of science when it comes to um, how immunity works and how we we build up immunity and adapt to to pathogens around us, including novel viruses like this one. Um, but every single every single aspect of human connectivity right? Even just being able to see each other's faces has a psychological impact on you. So what we are doing is removing humanity from from human beings in the name of preventing the spread of a virus that, that really has a very, very low mortality rate. And that is completely anti-human. And I, I, I just think it's I think it's a crime against humanity. And I've said that a number of times on Facebook now. I think what is going on right now is a crime against humanity. I completely agree. All right. So I think we just released a lot of frustration on each other. <laughs> Talking about coronavirus. <laughs> we agree on everything. We've had our therapy session. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your service, Carrie. <laughs> so let's talk about this project that you are working on. And I think this is very cool. And it's trying to get people to understand how, or to learn how to uh, critically think about things. And I think that's something that is very lacking in today's society and we need more of it. And so when you first started talking about this on Facebook, I noticed what you were doing, but I thought it was just something like another, like, like a homeschool session, like for kids. But that's not true. This is for everybody. It's not just kids. It's for adults, teenagers and adults, you know. So and I think it's very cool that anybody can participate in this. And I think it's something that I would like to be involved with if, if time allows. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But what is the Socratic method? Yeah. So um, first of all, I'm, I I have these, these sessions. I did. Um, I actually created a sort of a you know, a page on my website called Mere Liberty Courses. And the aim of this was to have these these online classes, um, which taught the skills of critical thinking. And the Socratic method is just one way, and it happens to be a very, a very effective way of teaching people how to critically think. So um, I really enjoy it. I mean, I, I have a degree in philosophy, and so I learned about the Socratic method when I was, uh, when I was taking my degree. And certainly I've used this, this method with my own kids in, in homeschooling and even just teaching them about the world. Um, the method is, is relatively simple, and that is that it, um, it encourages dialogue through open-ended questions and, and responses. So a little bit of history, the Socratic method comes from or originates with the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates. And Socrates is usually best known for two things. One, he was sentenced to death by drinking hemlock, 
And two, he was uh, he was accused of corrupting the the youth of Athens. And uh, those two are, those two things are actually related. He was sentenced to death um, because one, they they believed he was corrupting the youth of Athens, and two, because he was said to be an atheist because he didn't believe, or they said that he didn't believe in uh, in the Greek pantheon of gods. And what's interesting though is that when you when you actually dive into who Socrates was and what he did, um, he would actually go around Athens and he would talk to to people who uh, were either said to be wise by other people or believed themselves to be wise. And, you know, a lot of times these were, you know, politicians from, from the Senate. So Socrates would would engage in these dialogues just by asking questions. He would, he would come from a place of ignorance or assume his own ignorance, and he would start asking questions. And usually what would happen is with his inter interlocutors, the people who believe themselves to be wise, Socrates would be able to ask enough questions to be able to reveal their own ignorance, which would anger and annoy his, his interlocutors. And so I think part of the reason why he was accused of, you know, um, not believing in the, in the Greek pantheon, uh, had more to do with the fact that he was, you know, he was angering the politicians and, and people around, around Athens who believed themselves to be wise, but his admirers, Socrates's admirers were followers of his. And these were people, they were, they were young people. Um, they were youths you know, teens and early 20s males, typically, who already st understood that they were ignorant, that they didn't know enough. And so they enjoyed Socrates's method because it taught them something. They were able to take those questions and learn something. So the Socratic method is designed for people who understand that they're already coming from a place of ignorance, and it allows them to explore just about any topic that you can imagine simply through asking these open-ended questions. The, the word ignorance is very, <laughs> is, is funny to me because, and it was explained to me one time, a friend of mine who I've learned a ton from and actually who kind of led me down the path of being an anarchist, but he, he said, ignorance is not, it doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to learn. It just means you don't know. Because usually when people say, well, you're just ignorant, they use it as like a, a pejorative. Yeah. And so when you think about it and what he was saying, when he said that to me, I was like, okay, it doesn't mean that person's stupid. It just means they don't know. No. And the, the way I was, um, I, I had a, um, uh, a teacher in high school, my senior year of high school, she explained this to me to us. She said, stupidity is when you have knowledge and you don't use it. There you go. Ignorance is when you don't have the knowledge. Right. And right. we all are ignorant about one thing or another. Like we do not have the capacity to actually know all things. And I like um, to think that I do though. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and anybody that knows me knows that that's not true. And I know that's right. not true about me, but I like to yeah. think that I know everything and I have answers for everything, but I don't in reality. I mean, well, and it's, so it's, it's interesting because, you know, Socrates, if you, if you look at the difference between Socrates's interactions with his interlocutors, and then those who were admirers or followers of his you know, he never considered himself to be a teacher. He didn't think that he could teach anybody anything. He said, I can't, I, I can't teach you anything. I can only make you think. And so what would inevitably happen is he would use the same method. There was no, really no difference between the way he was interacting with 
his inter interlocutors and the way he was interacting with his admirers, the key difference between those two groups of people was, was their own intellectual humility. So Socrates believed that, that wisdom began from understanding your own ignorance. Yeah. And that, that's, that's cool. Because, and I was talking about my friend, he's been a mentor of mine and he kind of used the same method, I think with me, like he worked for the government, but I didn't know he was an anarchist. And I remember asking him when I was starting to think about anarchy a little bit, I asked him about, it. he goes, well, what do you think anarchy is? Like he didn't like shove it down my throat, but he's an anarchist. You know what I'm saying? And I told him this too. I was like, I really appreciate you not force feeding me anarchy because I would have rejected it immediately. Like you allowed me to think about it and you allowed me to ask questions without shoving it down my throat. And I'm trying to be that way with people when I'm trying to talk to people about anarchy myself and not just trying to shove it down the throat. Now, sometimes I'm like, you know what? This is the only way that this is going to work. <laughs> if we go to a voluntary society, this is, this is it. But they're, they're going to reject that. I can't force that on people. They have to come to that conclusion on their own. And I think that's very cool with what you're doing. I think it's very cool with how, how he, he allowed me to learn about it, ask him questions about it without even knowing he was an anarchist. And it surprised me when I found out he was an anarchist, <laughs> to be honest with you, <laughs> because, because the things he was saying yeah. was like yeah. what you hear anarchists saying. Right. But he wasn't like shoving it down my throat. And I think that's where we, we have to get to that. And I apologize for getting off track if I did. But I love this. I love this idea. And I love what you're doing with this. And I hope people will listen to this and latch on to it. Mm -hmm. So. What materials do you use and why? I mean, wh what is the reasoning? Sure. So if we're going to have a dialogue, right, we have to, we have to talk about something. And, um, you know, certainly I could use this method with anything, um, with any topic. In fact, I know somebody who uses the Socratic method to teach mathematics, but I use it um, in, uh, in my seminar. So my seminar is called the Liberty Seminar. And I have a course for middle schoolers, for high schoolers, and then I also have uh, an adult session. So all of the, the sessions are discussing various, uh, various topics that are, uh, you know, about a free society. They're the principles of a free society. So we are learning the skill of critical thinking by dialoguing about uh, what it means to live in a free society. So for the middle school, we actually use the Tuttle Twins series, which is a very, very popular series of books. And uh, Connor Boyack was was very gracious in uh, getting me a wonderful deal so that um, my students could have access to, my middle school students could have access to the entire series of books and the workbooks. But in addition to the Tuttle Twins, I've also created uh, some lessons which... Um, sort of introduce some some new ideas. The very first lesson that I do with the middle schoolers is to to explore what ideas are. This is a very abstract sort of thing. So we explore what ideas are, the importance of making mistakes, what self-ownership is. So um, I use a combination of, of lessons that I've created and then the Tuttle Twins books. And then the, the high schoolers, I also use a mixture. I uh, mix some of the lessons from a textbook from Robert Murphy uh, called Lessons for the Young Economist. And it's sort of a, a high school level um, introduction to, uh, to, to Mises and Rothbard. 
and, you know, Austrian economic theory. And uh, throughout, we'll go through and also uh, discuss some videos from the Out of Frame series from the Foundation for an Economic Education. And I like going through those because um, the creator of those videos, Sean Malone, uses pop culture to talk about these principles of liberty too. And so it's a fun way to interact with some of some of our favorite movies in a way that, you know, we can talk practically about, about these, these principles. And then finally in the adult session, um, I also use a mixture of lessons there as well. Uh, I use Murray Rothbard's book for a new Liberty, uh, which is a wonderful introduction to libertarian philosophy. And then I also discuss some other things like what education actually is. That's actually the, that's the first lesson we we talk about is what is the mark of an educated mind. We discuss faulty reasoning and uh, mostly fa- faulty reasoning in ourselves and just learning how to um, identify it in others and respond to it in a in a gracious and an intellectual way rather than a you know. Um, emotionally charged. I'm going to, I'm going to fight you on social media sort of way. I also do a crash course. Uh, I have two part lesson, a crash course in manipulation, what it is and how to respond to it, which I think, um, so far has been the most popular lessons out of both of those, because it's really eye opening for, for the students to be able to learn about manipulation, how that's different from influence, uh, and, how how it's used by by other people and how prevalent it is in society and then how to actually respond to it in a reasonable way. So those are the materials that I use and uh typically what happens is I you know I send out a lesson through email on a Monday and then the students have time to go through the lesson throughout the week. It should take no more than than 30 minutes uh to go through the lesson but I encourage students to think about it more than that, spend some more time thinking about it. Um, and then we have a zoom call either on Friday or Saturday. And so we have a 45 minute, um, Socratic dialogue discussion about, uh, what they learned and the ideas to get the students to start learning how to ask their own questions and start learning how to, uh, think through those things and disagree with each other graciously and really flesh things out. Um, so I encourage students to not be afraid to make mistakes because we can very easily evaluate, you know, a bad idea or a mistaken idea and understand why it's wrong rather than just getting sort of a, you know, a beat down from the instructor. No, you're <laughs> points, points docked. You, you got that wrong sorry for you. Like we don't, we don't do that. I encourage mistakes so that we can think through it. So that's basically the the process and the materials. I love this because, and you mentioned social media, because what we do on social media, a lot of times is just go back and forth with each other and don't really get anywhere right. with it. Like we're just arguing with each other because I've got my own set of ideals and he or she might have their own set of ideals. And we're going to put it to each other. But one thing I've noticed about doing that, I get to the point where I realize I'm not even talking to that person anymore. You know, I'm just saying what I have to say. And if people are reading it or, you know, like the, the audience, mm-hmm. yes. you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. it's not. 
I call them quiet onlookers. There you go. Yep. There you go. And I tend to, and, I, and you, you probably do too. Like I'll, I'll get messages from people wanting to know more about what I'm saying mm-hmm. because it's resonating with them, but they don't know enough about it. They're exactly. ignorant. They're exactly. not stupid. They're ignorant. Right. They just, exactly. They're just trying to learn something about it. And I think this is important. And I think people need to go down that path. Like I told you a while ago, I had to be able to ask my own questions to get to where I am now. And I think what you're doing with this is, is very important. And then people, I think if they latch onto it and they, they check it out, I think they're going to love it. And I wanted to ask you this too, like, because with, I work an insane amount of hours and I was curious about how somebody like me could do something or, or be involved with your seminars because, and then you say y'all do zoom calls on Friday and Saturday. I work Friday and Saturday. And my only day off right now is Sunday. And I, and that, I don't know how much longer that's going to last. But so I'm just so I was just curious to if, if it was something that I could do on my own time. Well, so right now, the way I have it set up is, um, you know, the Zoom calls are a necessary part of it. And I think even um, even if I created and I'm actually in the process of of creating some some workbooks that can sort of be done, you know, on your own time, uh, without the zoom call. Um, and that's helpful to, to a point. There's nothing quite like actually going through the process of the method because, um, you know, having somebody who, first of all, having, having, and I call myself a coach. I also, you know, I'm, <laughs> I don't like the idea of, of thinking of myself as a, as a teacher in this respect. I'm, I'm coaching, I'm guiding these, these students in learning how to critically think, but there's nothing quite like having somebody who is already skilled in the method, um, guiding and facilitating your own thought process. Um, because, there, there are a few things that I have noticed with, with students, regardless of their age. And that is, is when they're first introduced to this idea, they don't actually know how to ask questions. And so a lot of this process is teaching them how to ask questions. And initially it's just getting a question out there, right? Um, because a lot of the students will think, I don't want to actually ask a question because I'll look stupid. I'll look like I don't know what I'm talking about. And so they're hesitant. They're hesitant to even, it, it's too much of a risk for them to even ask the question. And so we go through this process of, of having them practice asking the questions. But also there's there's something about having to answer open-ended questions that you weren't prepared for. So one of the one of the reasons why I enjoy the Socratic method is because whatever text, you know, we're reading or video we're watching or lecture we're we're listening to, um, there's only so much information in that. And really the way to grab a hold of that information and make it your own is to think, um, think about it outside of the text and pull yourself out of the text. And so when we go through the Socratic dialogue, we'll start out with what the text is talking about, but eventually we start getting to questions that aren't answered by the text. And there's, uh, I, I tell my students, okay, I'm going to ask you a brain stretching question now. And so I'll ask them a question that is not directly answered by the text and they have to sit there and think about it. And, you know, there'll be this long pause, this long 
quite, not terribly long, but long enough that it's just uncomfortable enough that somebody has to spit something out <laughs> and, and, and say it. And there's nothing quite like going through that process. So I am developing a workbook that, um, can eventually be used sort of, you know, on your own time to learn some of these things, but there's nothing quite like going through the actual, the actual dialogue and, and going through, through it with a coach who, understands, you know, how to guide you through that process. That's awesome. I, I really want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to be a part of this in, in some fashion, you know, even if it's just going through a workbook or something, because I, I, I myself need to take a step back and just and shut up for a second and think about what 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 I'm going to say or what you know how I'm going to answer a question you know and it's easy to do that like on Facebook post because you don't have to answer immediately but I want to be able to do this like on a one-on-one like face-to-face yeah conversation when people are asking me questions about yeah what I what I think about politics or religion or anything you know what I'm saying so I yeah I want to be able to answer quickly and not say, well, I'll, I'll get back to you because I'm going to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I want to be able to to respond adequately and not be a jerk about it because sure. I, I have a tendency to do that. Mm-hmm. I know that about me. I, I, I recognize that about me that I come in and people tell me you come across as a jerk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I know. I know I do. <laughs> but it's just very frustrating because... To me, what 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 I'm what I'm trying to explain to me to people, it's very to me, it's all black and white. Like this is it, but it's not always black and white with everybody. No, yeah. And so they have to be able to work through their own process, like we have, mm-hmm. how we've got to where we are. You know what I'm saying? And sure, I tend to ramble with this, but I think it's I, I want to do this, I, and I hope everybody listened to this episode we'll we'll check this out as well because we need more of this we need more of these types of conversations with each other you know i'm talking about face-to-face interaction with people now and i think we've already covered this but one of the questions was how does this method teach critical thinking so critical thinking is sort of a lost art you might say we're all thinkers but um we aren't at the same skill level in thinking. In fact, there are um, there's said to be six different stages of thinking. And the first stage is the unreflective thinker. This is a thinker who doesn't understand, um, they don't understand the role that thinking plays in their life, even though they are, uh, you know, subconsciously working through things and, 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 you know, cause they have to make decisions about their life. And, uh, but they're unreflective about it. They're not considering, you know, what they actually know about something. They aren't considering that somebody else might have more information than them, that sort of thing. So there are these different stages of, of thinking. And we learn this as a skill. We learn to be better thinkers. So critical thinking is the skill that you have to develop through practice and over time and even systematically. But it it begins with recognizing your own ignorance. Like once you, once you recognize your own ignorance, then you move from being an unreflective thinker to a challenged thinker. Like suddenly, whoa, you realize that maybe you don't actually have all the puzzle pieces you need in order to, to build that picture. 
Um, so that's what the method does. It's, it's, it starts with, um, with your own ignorance. And like I said, Socrates believed that, that the more knowledge you had about the world, the more you realized you didn't know much about the world. And that that was wisdom in his view was, was knowing that you didn't know. And those who had less knowledge about the world believed that they knew way more than, than, you know, about the world that they, than they actually did. And psychologists actually came up with a term for this known as the Dunning-Kroger effect. And so they've been able to study and reproduce this, this phenomenon. And, um, so the Socratic method is a way of bringing awareness to your own level of knowledge and ignorance. And if it's done correctly and not in a demeaning way, um, you know, I don't use the the method to sort of, you know, put you in your spot and and show you to be inferior to me in any sort of way. I do it um, in a much more caring and productive way that allows the student to explore their their own lack of knowledge um, about the world in a very safe environment that's going to encourage them to be explore explorers. And so after that initial reorientation. The students are shown how to use these open-ended questions to explore ideas from their state of in- ignorance and, act- and grow in actual knowledge. Um, so it's it's using open-ended questions to aid um, not only in discovery of new information, but in self-assessment and to be honest with one's own progress and and how to improve uh, and that sort of thing. So it's the beginning of a of a you know lifelong effort in, in learning, but you're also developing these skills that eventually start to become more second nature to you. Love it. Can't get enough of this. I don't think <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a ton of fun. Like all the students, we've, we've all had a ton of fun doing it. And we talk about social media. When you look at the conversation going on right now with, with, with the election coming up and when this this episode releases, it'll be right after the election. But if you look at the the conversations online with people going back and forth, do you ever find yourself being like, do you just feel like you just want to hit your head on your desk repeatedly? <laughs> like, what are you doing, y'all? Y'all y'all aren't even having a conversation. You're just arguing. You're not even thinking about any of this. Well, I'll tell you what. Um understanding uh, understanding these different stages of 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 thinkers and you know who's actually going to respond to what um actually allows me to filter through a lot of that crap on social media like i can tell when i'm not going to have a productive conversation with somebody on social media and so i choose not to engage with that um because all it's going to do is fan flames and and make it worse but it does allow me to pick and choose, you know, who I will interact with. And so I can see when somebody is asking genuine questions or, or, uh, is coming from a place of seeking understanding. And then I can, I can engage with that. Um, so in some fashion, you know, or not even in some fashion, the idea here is, is that you learn these skills 
in an environment that's designed to to be safe, like you don't get attacked, right? We don't we don't attack each other in the seminar. But then you've learned these skills, and you can take those skills and use them yourself. And you can use them out on social media. You can use them to you know learn something new. Maybe you um, maybe you want to learn more about biology, and and you go online and you start exploring biology, and you you use these questions or this mode of thinking in order to to teach yourself. So, you know, there is there is the frustrated level that that you can get just by observing people who are unreflective thinkers kind of going back and forth, but there's also that okay, I'm I'm aware enough of the situation that I can pick and choose. I can I can determine who's going to be more receptive to um, to my dialogue and actually have a fruitful, productive conversation with them. I've noticed that about you on, on your Facebook post and I'm sitting here chuckling, thinking about something while you were talking and I hope you didn't hear me laughing, but I was thinking about something you said on one of your posts because you, you, when we've got back to like the, we're going back to like the coronavirus thing and you posted something that the CDC themselves said and some dude jumped on your post <laughs> and was trying to discredit what you were saying and you were like take it up with the cdc man <laughs> <laughs> and i saw it i saw read that and i just died laughing i was like why are you arguing with her she just said what they said yeah well and i was i was being i was being a bit facetious i mean yeah. <laughs> you know that actually the second lesson that i do with the adults is we go through uh we watch this video about um how to uh uh, how well, I'm forgetting the title exactly, but it's basically how you can use true statistics to lie about things. So we go through, and you know, this video explains sort of how statistics has been used in the past to make very reasonable um, arguments and, and explanations that that seem on their face to be self-evidently true. And then he goes through and he explains how each of those examples were actually wrong. And he uses real case studies. Um, so he's not just making this up. But when I have gone through the, the that lesson with the adult students, they immediately think of COVID and what we're being told in the media, you know, using these statistics. And they say, oh, like there's a bigger picture here. Like, yes, yes, there is a fatality rate of such and such percent, but what does that mean in the, in the grand scheme of things? You know, um, we learn about, uh, correlation versus causation. Um, and one of my favorite lessons is, is learning about spurious correlations, which are things that seem to be related, but aren't actually at all. So, you know, my, my post, my post that you're, you're referencing, I mean, I, I want to be able to say, go talk to the CDC because they're the ones who are putting out this data in such a way as to make it appear to mean one thing when it may not actually mean that. And so that makes it very difficult for people who don't understand statistics to try and filter through it. And so, you know, we're left with critically thinking through other aspects of, of what's going on. All right. So I got a couple more questions before I let you go. And then I want to read something from your website that people have people have commented themselves about taking this th these classes and 
I think that's very, I think it's very cool to get that out there, how people have responded to what you're doing. But how are these classes different from like lecture style classes? So I love this question. Um, and I use this question in my, I, I have an initial one-on-one with my students where we talk about, you know, what the expectations are. And so I'm going to throw a question back at you, Craig. Oh, gosh. I was not prepared. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, I want you to think about, like, when you think about learning something or education, do, what do you think about? What Describe that that basic process to me. When I think about education, like, are you talking about, like, yeah. public schools or... You tell me what's your what's your impression? What comes to mind when you think about how how are we educated? What's the typical process? Uh, you go to school for twelve years. You go to public schools, and we're educated mm-hmm. by by teachers in these uh, in these classes, and we just learn what they've taught us without even thinking about what they're teaching us. But I don't really believe that's actually education, though. I think education is something that you learn through life. So go back to that classroom environment, okay? And stick yourself in that desk, right? You're a kid again, you're in school and think about think about the environment, okay? You're sitting there in that desk and you have a teacher. What is the teacher doing? Talking continuously and I'm falling asleep. <laughs> If you if you want if you want me to be completely honest, like when I mm-hmm. when I when I moved from Texas to Arkansas, I was halfway through my senior year in high school, and everything that I was had learned in Texas, they were already teach they were teaching in Arkansas, so I already learned it. So I slept like my last semester of high school, yes, through my classes because I was bored out of my mind. You weren't engaged. You were bored. Now, so your your teacher is 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 telling you stuff right? Or maybe she's reading to you or you're reading out of a textbook, but you're being given information, right? Now, how do they, how do they assess? How do they tell if you've learned that information? Well, they get me, they make you take a test Mm -hmm. or a pop quiz or, or something of that nature. That's how they, they gauge if you've learned anything, which, yeah, you know what I'm saying? I wasn't really listening. So I don't know if I or not. Yeah. So this, I, I, so I'm asking you these series of questions to help you think through what a lecture style class is. So a lecture style class is this idea that you have one person who has all the knowledge or most of the knowledge, which is the teacher. And then another person who has no knowledge, who needs knowledge. And we have this idea that the teacher is there to sort of pour knowledge into your head. And your job as the learner is to regurgitate what just got poured into your head. And so the test is really just a test of memory recall to see if you recall the information that was that was taught to you. But you're right, they don't engage the class, right? And by not engaging the class, you're, you're actually not activating parts of the brain that are necessary for learning that, that information. And so lecture style classes often don't actually go far enough. They don't engage the students in in any sort of dialogue that gets their brains working through the information. And two, they're only testing the student for memory recall. And, you know, our our own memories work differently per person. And our memories are only going to work at their peak if we've engaged in, in the in the material. So 
the way the the reason why this is or or the way the socratic method is different from a lecture style class is i don't give a lecture right we have an an assignment a reading or you know something to watch or listen to and we take that information and we have a dialogue about it and i tell my students you know i might have an idea about something or i might give you a response to something uh, that you think is wrong and how many times, Craig, did you take a test and you were convinced that you were right about an answer, but but it got marked wrong? How many times did that happen to you? Well, my grade scores are evident. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but there were times where you thought, I'm sure I'm right about this answer, but you weren't given an opportunity to really defend it and, and you know, uh, make the case that that you were right about it. Right. Right. So and so when, yeah, that makes sense because, like I said, I'm right about everything in my own head. So <laughs> <laughs> when it, so if I don't have a chance to defend my my position, I'm going to disengage. Right. Pretty quickly. And so we talked about this a while ago. You're going to try and force feed me something that I'm not going to acknowledge because I think you're wrong, even if I'm wrong you're not going to allow me the chance to find out on my own that I'm wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like you're just telling me that I'm wrong without letting me explain why I think I'm right. So, you know, that's again, one of, this is the same teacher that I referenced before. One of my favorite teachers in high school, she, she told us, she said, look, if I mark you wrong on something and you think you're right, if you can come to me and defend your case and make a case for why you're right, I'll give you credit for it. And, um, she was the, she was one of the only teachers who did that but really what that opened the opportunity for was for us to have a dialogue with her so that we could flesh out why we were wrong and that that was the learning process so you know in these socratic sessions i'm not lecturing i'm not sitting here saying you know up on high saying i've got all the knowledge and i need to pour this into your head right we are taking these ideas and we are thinking through them and we are, uh, we're testing them with examples and, um, comparing and contrasting and, and really getting to know those ideas and thinking through them in such a way that the students are able to process through it and kind of own that information. And then they understand it at a way deeper level. And that actually gets locked in, not into not just into short-term memory, but into long-term memory as well. So that's that's essentially the difference between a lecture-style class and a Socratic seminar, which I gave you a little uh, ad hoc in- introduction <laughs> to. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I think that I think we need more of that. I mean, because mm-hmm. I, I really think that it's important that if we could just sit down and just talk to each yeah. other and have conversations and learn things that we didn't know before, even if we thought we knew them. You know what I'm saying? I think we need more of that. Like, well, there's not a lot of that going on right now. There's not, I don't think there's any of that going on really. Like, because other than what you're doing, and I'm sure there's other people doing it, but I'm just, when you look, and I, and I always go back to social media, when you look at these conversations that people are having with each other, it's gross. Yeah. And I'm tired of it. And it's exhausting for me to watch this because nobody's learning from each other. Yeah. Like I could sit down and have a conversation with Carrie or I can sit down and have a conversation with Joe Schmo 
and we can learn from each other. Yeah. Now we may not come to an agreement at the end. And that's okay. And that's okay. <laughs> exactly. Yes. That is completely that's okay. okay. Like we don't want everybody. We we actually don't want everybody thinking like us because that would be very boring and we would get nowhere. Oh, I don't know. I kind of um, kind of want people to think like us all the time because it would make my life so much easier. I'll tell you what, though. I had um, one of my students who took my my first adult seminar when she signed up for the class, and she told me this after after the fifteen weeks was done. Um, she told me, she said, Carrie, when, uh, cause I asked, I asked them, what were your expectations for the class? And, you know, did, were those expectations met? She said, you know, when I heard that you were doing a Socratic method, what I thought was, and she mentioned this, this YouTuber that sort of became famous among, you know, libertarian people. Um, his name is, uh, Jan, Jan Helfeld. And he would sort of use, he would use the, the Socratic method, you know, these open-ended questions in more of, um, more of a, a devious sort of way. You know, he was really trying to pin down and show his, you know, the people he was asking questions that they were just, they were fools and they didn't know what they were talking about. And so when she signed up for my class, she thought, oh, I'm going to finally learn how to argue in such a way as to put somebody in their place and make them realize that they don't actually know what they're talking about. And she said, I was surprised, Carrie, when what you did was you actually took me through my own thought process and and had me evaluate myself and my my own thought processes and where I needed to improve my own thinking. So that was that was really interesting because it's sort of it it tells you something about, you know, this this world that we live in with social media and that desire to be right right? That desire to not even to be right, but to win an argument and, and not even understand why, why you are right, or maybe you're wrong and you don't even realize it. So learning critical thinking is not about one upping somebody else. It's about self-improvement. Yeah. And I think that's, that's cool too, because I think, and I think it's happened with everybody when, when you get into a debate with somebody and they point something out and you realize you're wrong about something it almost feels like a gut punch. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, wait a second. Maybe, well, what if everything I've been saying is wrong then? Yeah. You know, like, I don't, I don't know if, that, if that's right or not, but for me personally, like, because that's how I've learned from people is being wrong about things. Yeah. Well, and I tell my students, we're more often wrong than we are right. And, you know, that gut punch that you feel, that's, that's, that's you at that challenged thinker stage, right? You've just come to the realization that you don't actually know what you think you know. And part of this process is actually becoming comfortable with not knowing, because in order for you to actually get beyond not knowing, first, you have to acknowledge that you don't know, being able to make the statement, I don't know, um, is is difficult for some people. Well, it's an ego. It's an ego issue, I think. Right. Maybe for me. Maybe not for everybody, but for me, like it, it's a. I get a bruised ego if. Yeah. Well. I realize I was wrong about something, and been what I've been so adamant about what I was saying. That's that challenge thinker stage, and if you if if you remain bruised ego and and you can't get beyond that, you go back to unreflective thinker, right? If you don't evaluate why you felt the gut punch 
why in, in one of the things that we do is we talk about how our feelings connect to our thoughts. But if you can't get beyond that gut punch, you're never going to be able to really get into being a, a practicing thinker. And so, you know, one of the skills that we develop, one of the first skills that you develop in, in the Socratic process is intellectual humility and being able to say, I'm, you know, I don't know, or gosh, I was wrong about that. Being comfortable saying that because you have to be comfortable in order to start asking the questions that give you the knowledge you need in order to come to a place of knowing. There you go. That's awesome. All right. One more question. And then, like I said, I want to go to your website and, and read some things that people have said about your, your seminars. But um, what skills do st students develop as a result? I think we've probably covered this throughout this episode, but I, I want you to pin it down. What, yeah. what skills do students develop? So there are some more practical critical thinking skills, like learning how to compare and contrast, um, clarifying issues, conclusions, and beliefs, refining generalizations and, and avoiding oversimplification and understanding the difference between a generalization and an oversimplification. Um, again, understanding how your thoughts connect to your feelings. Um, there's, you know, uh, Ben Shapiro is very famous for saying facts don't care about your feelings, but I think your feelings actually care about facts. And so your emotions give you some sort of, uh, indication of what you need to do with that information. You know, we don't want to act off those emotions, but they are indicators of, of what direction we need to take. Um, some, some more, um, abstract things that we develop throughout the course is again, intellectual humility, intellectual courage, being able to actually, um, defend a position you do believe, you know, is, is true and right. Um, developing intellectual integrity, independent thinking, again, self-awareness, fair-mindedness, um, and then perseverance and confidence and reason. One of the reasons why somebody can be comfortable saying, I don't know, is because they they are are confident enough in in their own ability to be able to um, work through that 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 issue and and understand it's okay to not know as long as you know you're seeking a positive end to that whatever it may be. So those are some of the skills that we we develop over the course of you know the fifteen weeks. But you continue to develop these over time as well as you continue to practice them. And the idea is, is after the 15 weeks, you want to continue practicing them. Yes. I want to do this. Like I said, if I can find some freaking time with work, but I want to read a couple of things from your, <laughs> your website on, on these Socratic messages, these students that have taken it. And I think this really solidifies what you're doing because just having these, these types of endorsements are cool because it, you can tell by reading what they're saying that it has changed the way that they think about things. And here's one, I'm not going to mention people's names, but that she said, we have been so thankful to find Carrie Baldwin's Zoom class. Learning about the Socratic method while reading the Tuttle Twins books every week has really been fun and helped not only my teenager, but the whole family expand our knowledge of liberty themed topics and also learn effective ways of communicating with others that have differing ideas. Creating a dialogue where both participants exhibit mutual respect for each other and seeking to truly understand where the other person is coming from is a skill we all need to develop more, especially in today's reactive social environment. And I cannot say that out loud enough because that is so true. 
And she said, asking thoughtful questions, pausing to really listen is an invaluable skill. I'm grateful to be cultivated in my son with Carrie's help. I absolutely, absolutely recommend this class for middle school, high school, and any adult wanting to understand the concepts discussed within this course. I'm positive it will pay dividends for many years to come. We will most likely take it again soon. That's cool, man. Like what she said is, is awesome because, and she's so right. Yeah. That, that's cool. Yeah. Well, and you know, her son was, was in my middle school course and I really, really love doing this with the middle school kids because, and I've done it with, with kids as, as young as elementary, but we tend to treat kids as, as not having the capacity to critically think, but I don't see it that way at all. When I engage kids in these conversations, um, you would be surprised what they come up with. The mind of the child is, is, is absolutely amazing. And I love watching their wheels turn and watching them work through it and grow. Well, their questions are so honest. Yeah. Well, but they, they also, when they are given that safe environment to make a mistake, which they don't, you don't get that in public school. And I did have two public schoolers that just couldn't quite come out of their shell. One of them started to, and he did really, really well. Um, but the public school really hammers this down and keeps, keeps critical thought completely out. In fact, not just out, but they make it, they make the students fearful of, of critical thought. And so when a, when a child is in that safe environment, they know that they're safe and free to make mistakes. Um, then they're free to explore these ideas. And when they're given that environment, they can actually come up with some pretty stinking good ideas and they make the connections that, that they need to connect. Right. Um, and, you know, I had one, one student who, when we went over the, the concept of self-ownership, you know, I didn't. I didn't bring God into it at all, but he did. He said, you know what? I just realized um, this is this is self-ownership in relation to each other, but this is stewardship in relation to God. Like he figured that out. I didn't teach him that. He was able to take these, these skills and process through that and learn not only how he related to other human beings, this is a middle schooler, but how he related to God. And he got it exactly right. That's awesome. Yeah. That is so cool, man. I just, I think we do look at kids like they don't know things. They're ignorant. <laughs> but in reality, they probably know a whole lot more than we do because they're, they're, they're coming from it with like out of innocence. Like we've been, we've been run through the gamut as adults, you know, like we've been through all this. And I love this because what we try to get across as our message as anarchists or libertarians or just being liberty-minded people, you know, I think the younger generation is where it's going to have to happen. And I think that we need them to be involved with this a lot more than we think they would need them to, because we're not going to be able to change it in our, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 45 and talking to people my age or close to my age, you know, they're just so dug in about, their ideals but when you get a kid that's still trying to explore the world and try to understand things i think that it's important that they we listen to them well and and a child's brain is still developing and in many ways is so much more active than than an adult brain like in an adult brain our pathways are already created and 
And in order to change those pathways, you have to sort of undo them and then work to redo new ones. And that's a difficult process. And so that's sort of why you have, you know, older generations are more stuck in their ways is because these, these pathways are already built. Um, and it takes a process to deconstruct them and reconstruct something new. It's not impossible. You can do it, but it's harder the, the older you get. But with kids, their, their minds are like sponges. They, they just, they're soaking up the information and their brains are working and the brains are specifically working toward the end of making these connections. So the more you have these dialogues with, with kids and just let them think, um, the faster they'll, they'll catch on. And it's, it, it truly is. It, it amazes me every single time I have these conversations with these kids because they get it. That's cool. Yeah. And I think my brain just tells me to take a nap most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's where I'm at in my in my in, in my knowledge. Just go to sleep, Craig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wake up and think about it tomorrow. But anyway, I really appreciate you coming on and telling us about this. This is this has been a cool conversation. I think that people listening will really enjoy doing this or being a part of this because it's important. Even if you're an old man like me, yeah, you can still get there. And and, and I think. We need more of this. We need more of what Carrie's doing. And I really appreciate what you're doing. I think it's very cool that you're taking the time to do this with people that you don't even know personally, maybe. And I, I really appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, thanks. So why don't you tell people where they can find you and find out more about the Socratic seminars. Yeah. So you can go to my website, which is just courses.mereliberty.com. That's M-E-R-E liberty.com. I also uh, have just started a Facebook group where people can come to sort of learn more about the method um, and uh, just information generally about critical thinking and how I use it in the course. Um, so I've got some videos up there. I've got some little infographics about all the different stages of thinking. Um, I will have it at some point in the very near future, um, an interview that I did with my own adult students from the summer session, and then a recorded, uh, Socratic seminar with them so that you can get an idea of how it works. Registration will close uh, for the for the spring semester, which the spring semester b- begins on January fourth, registration will close on December twenty eighth, and I only have it I only have it open for about eight weeks prior to to each new uh, semester beginning. But you can find all the information on courses.mereliberty.com, and you can also join my Facebook group if you just uh, search for Mere Liberty Courses or Liberty Seminar. Um, you should be able to find it. I'll also have a link for that Facebook group on my website. Sweet. I think I'm going to go and join that group and just kind of be an audience. Yeah, absolutely. Like a spectator, just so I can just kind of watch this go down because, and I might, I might have some questions along the way, but just sure, just to kind of uh, get a feel for it myself. So if that's the only way I can participate right now with work, but I mean, I think I'm going to go join that Facebook group or hopefully you'll let me into your Facebook group. Yeah, yeah. Everybody can join. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I can really, um, you know, answer questions and interact with people who are trying to get it more information about it, and how it works and why it's so effective. And so it'll be, uh, hopefully, it will be, you know, active with with all of that going on. 
Cool, man. I really appreciate this. And I really, like I said before, I really, really appreciate what you're doing and keep it up. Well, I thank you for, for having me on your show so I can talk about it. I really appreciate that. Well, there's a lot of people out here rooting you on, I promise you. And thank you. Just just keep it up. If you ever get discouraged about anything, just remember we're back there in the, in the we're spectating. Oh, thank you. For Carrie Baldwin. You're so sweet. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Carrie. And I will definitely have you back on the show. I really enjoy our conversations. Yeah, this is fun. Hey, folks. Greg here. And I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors have no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page. And you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, and send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Thanks for joining us this week on The Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about The Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com.